This is an AMI podcast. I'm Dave Brown, and this is a podcast version of AMI's Morning Show, now with Dave Brown. Catch the live broadcasts weekdays from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of the show, which means we have the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Welcome back. And we will also say hello to Joita Gupta. Hello, Joita. Hey, Dave. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Wow. Bonjour and comment ça va? Très bien. Merci. Uh, let's, let's try Michelle's audio connection one more time here. Hello, Michelle. Oh, somebody has Michelle on mute. No, salut, salut tout le monde. Oh, okay, there we go. Now we got Michelle. We got everybody. Everybody's okay, in the mix. Cool. That's good. We love it. All right, guys, let's jump right into our first topic, which is one that we've explored before and we're exploring again. Why? Because it's really important. Access to health care. A Victoria woman says her decision to place an ad in a newspaper to find a family doctor for her 82-year-old husband worked, but left her with deep concerns about BC's health system. Janet Mort says she reluctantly went public with her husband's health needs, but she had nowhere to turn after months of failing to find a doctor. She says several doctors responded to the newspaper ad, ready to take her husband on as a patient. Yes, and no one in government helped me with it. We did it ourselves with yeah. compassionate people who responded. I think if, if we had followed through, I think about five doctors in Victoria would have taken Michael, um, but we took the first one. BC Premier John Horgan says he should use a similar approach to getting federal health dollars. Uh, maybe I'll take out an ad in the paper. I don't know. Um, I suspect we're going to do that anyway. But uh, I've been pretty candid uh, with uh, the federal government about this, as have my colleagues. Again, uh, this isn't a, a question of partisanship. It's not a question of a region. It's the whole country. Janet Mort said she found that response from the Premier to be offensive. Michelle, where do you think we should start this conversation? Uh, it, that's a good question because it's a big one. Um, there are two strands here. There's the individual case, of course, and the premier's response. And I have to say that hearing the clips does convey a different sense of it than reading it in a, in a newspaper story. Uh, so it's, I'm glad you played the audio so we can have a more fulsome discussion about whether or not that kind of response to an individual situation is, is really appropriate. But it, this is a really definitely a bigger issue. The fact is that BC and so many provinces now are grappling with big time health shortages and the situation like Janet Mort's is not uncommon. Uh, we've seen governments fall on this issue of addressing health, the healthcare system and issues there in Nova Scotia. The Liberal government fell to the Conservatives who are now trying to grapple with that particular issue. It's a really hot button issue in Ontario right now with a lot of hospital ER closures and staffing shortages and efforts now to try to accelerate getting more nurses into the system. You've got Alberta wrestling with similar issues. So this is a big one, and it's hard to really know where to begin, but I think it's worth discussing. These individual circumstances and these individual cases illustrate the issues that are being faced, which, of course, then leads us to issues of what to do about them Mm -hmm. and whether or not taking it out in the paper is... Obviously, it's not going to be an appropriate government response, but it does raise a lot of questions about what can be done. So let, let's start with some of the specificities and then we can kick open the doors of Dave Juida and Michelle Consulting. 
let's start with the premier's. Ooh. Let's start with the premier's response. I thought it was a little bit flippant, although uh, politically yeah. sort of it, it was it was really slick political messaging, but it seemed really insensitive and really flippant. Juita, what did you make of the premier's response? Yeah, I agree. I thought it was quite flippant as well. Now, bear in mind, the premier isn't seeking re-election, so he can afford to, I think, be a little loose with his language. Um, but certainly it came off as tongue-in-cheek and insensitive to the plight of Janet Mort and her family and, 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 and somehow oblivious to how many people in B.C. and, in fact, across Canada are struggling with the very same problem. So, uh, you know, his response could have been a little bit... Um, he could have had a better response. I think the response indicates the deep uh, cynicism that has set in in conversations about healthcare, where it's become a lot of political sniping and not very much by way of solutions. And I'm hoping <coughs> we can get away from some of that sniping where the federal government is blaming the province and the province is blaming the federal government. But when you think about the the woman or the family who felt that they had no other resort but to expose their vulnerability in such a public way and put an ad in the paper. I mean, on the one hand, it was really intelligent. Uh, it was a great PR move, if you want to look at it that way. But it's also very disappointing and discouraging that she had to go that route. I think a little more sensitivity from the premier, a little more humility, a little more um, a slightly more apologetic response might have resonated better with me, uh, and I dare say it would have resonated better with Janet Mort. Yeah, so Ju- Michelle, Juita just pushed the ball forward a little bit there, so I'll ask you a two-pronger. What mm-hmm. did you make of the Premier's response? And B, what do you make of the utilization of this tactic of taking out newspaper ads, trying to seek out uh, help? I mean, I, mean I, would say even, I would say even going beyond newspaper ads, people using GoFundMe campaigns, social media campaigns, the sort of general way in which people are putting out cries for help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with both of you that that response was, was kind of jarring to me, especially, as I said earlier, hearing it out loud. Uh, you got one sense of how flip it could be when you read it in print. Hearing it out loud it conveys an even more strong sense of that message. So I would agree with you. As, and I was a bit surprised to have that coming from a premier who had very public health battles himself. He's battled with cancer. In fact, he cited medical reasons as a reason not to seek re-election. Uh, so the, the, the tone, perhaps he didn't mean it that way, but I, I would share everyone else's assessment with how that came off. And I don't blame Janet Mort for being upset by having that sort of parlayed into a sound clip. Because yes, you're right. This kind of public messaging I think speaks to how deep this crisis is. Uh, This was clearly not a grandstanding effort. The very fact that they had multiple options of doctors coming forward and they just took the first one. This is clearly a sign of the fact that they were desperate for some medical support. Uh, Any kind of public outreach like that is very risky. Uh, The idea of airing my health anywhere public is the stuff of my nightmares personally. So it's profoundly brave and and hard for people to make that kind of step and it speaks to how desperate people really are uh, even in more privileged circles because I think it's worth pointing out the fact that an ad in the paper specifically I think can only really be placed by someone with the means and resources to do that and the connections to make it happen. Uh, Social media or a GoFundMe platform perhaps is a little more uh, democratic in that sense but when these kinds of healthcare shortages and doctor shortfalls and whatnot are, are reaching all echelons of society. I think it speaks to the scope and the 
severity of the problem. Yeah. In terms of the tactic being utilized, when you're in these types of crises situations, you do what you have to do, right? The desperation Mm -hmm. will make you do that. And like that, as you point out, is sort of the larger issue here that we shouldn't be having people in these senses of desperation having to do that. But Michelle, I'm glad you mentioned the notion of what it would cost or what it would take to do that full page ad in a newspaper in a notable publication where other journalists are now going to read this and turn this into a news story, as opposed to sometimes the ways things can get lost in the algorithm on a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or other forms of a GoFundMe post. So I think there is something to identify there in regards to the ability to leverage old school linear media as part of that in a way that may reach more eyes and ears in a more substantive, concrete way. So I think that's really well put. Joita, what do you make of the tactic? It's a good tactic. Um, I don't know if it, either of you has ever done uh, deputation training. Um, so back yeah. in the day, I was involved with a transit group, um, and they said, you know, if you go to city council, you could go and blurt out a bunch of stats and try to convince city councillors that way. But you might want to bring in the personal anecdotes and the stories. You know, I um, remember this is really compelling story out of Toronto where. Um, that clip still lives on YouTube, where a woman says that she uh, does not have the means to afford transit, uh, so she has to walk everywhere. And she said, it takes me two hours to walk, you know, to work and back. And I have blisters on my feet. Uh, Why am I bringing up this unrelated example? Because uh, to quote the feminist move from, to borrow from the second wave feminist movement, the personal is political. And often telling these stories in deeply meaningful and personal ways can be extremely powerful in getting the message across. So while it is, uh, while the tactic runs the risk of exposure, uh, and while it runs the risk of even backlash in some instances, uh, it is nevertheless a very useful strategy from the perspective of anyone who is trying to move the needle on a social issue or a point of crises. And let's face it, when it comes to the shortages in our healthcare system, I just heard a commentator say it this morning, and I don't think they'd be the first nor the last to say it, that our healthcare system and some of the shortfalls are really in, we're, we're in a moment of crisis. The one other thing that was really interesting about this is how after the ad came out, five family doctors stepped up to offer their services Mm -hmm. to Michael Moore. And I wanted to just uh, spend a minute with that because I think part of the issue isn't just the shortage, but I think part of the problem might also be uh, in how referrals get made. So Mm. at least in Ontario, if you need a lawyer, you can call the Law Society of Ontario, the Law Referral Service, um, and they will refer you to a lawyer. Whether you end up working with a lawyer is besides the point, but there is a mechanism to get a referral to a lawyer. You don't really have, to the best of my knowledge, a similar referral process for family doctors. So they are maybe, you know, there's a mismatch there between people who need family physicians and family physicians with openings for new patients who are not being put in touch with one another. So it's not the the solution or the silver bullet, but I think there is an interesting conversation about whether we need some uh, bureaucratic or administrative solutions to try and bring people together, family physicians and people who need referrals in order to try and address some of these gaps in the system. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that sometimes dumb luck ends up being the thing that allows you to have proper access to healthcare. It, it's, it's preposterous sometimes that just uh, happen, happening to email a clinic just after they open or when a new doctor starts in a position that, oh, okay, there you go. You, you, like, you cracked the magic code that you emailed them on the right day at the right time to be able to get access to something 
that you needed. So let's talk about solutions because certainly dollars are the things that the premiers were banging on about a couple of weeks ago. And you heard Premier John Horgan say it again this week. It's about federal dollars, federal dollars, federal dollars. But like we talked about a couple of weeks ago on this panel, the solution needs to be more about than just throwing money at the problem, right? That, that when we're talking about staffing shortages. Dollars don't directly solve a staffing shortage. Training does. Having enough people does. Yeah. It, like the notion of the hallway medicine. Yes, building new hospitals matter, but what about triage systems or clinic systems, right? What are the solutions here to improve access to healthcare? Juita just identified one. Can we have some kind of proper registry that people can go through referral services to actually get to the things they need without having to do a guess and test model? But Michelle, before I start stealing all the ideas and talking about all the ideas, what are some ideas that you have in mind? I have to say, I don't feel like I've deserved my promotion to partner in Dave Brown Consulting uh, because I, ideas are not my forte on this file <laughs> in particular uh, because it's such a complex issue. And we're see- it's interesting to watch all the different provinces grappling with various aspects of it. But there are so many pieces to the puzzle that need to be considered. And, and I think a big, big part of this issue is support and retention of staff. Uh, we are now talking about a system that's been heavily taxed in every sense, by the COVID-19 pandemic, everyone is burned out. They've been working in some cases without adequate compensation, and that's a big one. A lot of people are saying, you know what, I'm done. I, I don't want to work in these conditions for this kind of money, and they're leaving the system. So retaining talent is a big, big problem and contributing to those staff shortages. And now we're seeing provinces talking about solutions like uh, adjusting some of the criteria, fast-tracking people, getting qualified to enter the profession, uh, recognition of foreign credentials, all of which I think have some some place in this system. Uh, but there needs to be a look back at those who are already there as well, not just those who might enter the system in the future. And I think uh, addressing the compensation issue does come back to money to some degree, and I think that is a, an important piece of the puzzle. Although, uh, as you said, Dave, this is not just a federal matter and federal dollars are not going to be the only thing that can uh, even attempt to tackle this. Yeah, part of this to me is about policy shifts. And we yeah. talked about this a couple of years ago when there were certain foreign medical students from Saudi Arabia who were being uh, who were being asked to leave due to some weapons contracting. I, I don't want to get into all this, all this like minutia of that deal, but a lot of med schools were saying, oh, no, we need these students from Saudi Arabia to fill our ranks. And then people in the profession were saying, and we need them to come fill up these positions positions in the in the entry level for our hospitals and for our healthcare system and my position then is the position that I hold now we are not letting enough people into our med schools. We've made it so prestigious to get into med school that we're not training enough doctors. We just aren't. The fact is when somebody starts medical school, it doesn't matter if they fail out in the first year. That's fine. We need a critical mass of people working as doctors. We need critical masses of people working as nurses. We need administrators. We need specialists. We need radiologists. We need everybody across the board to be filling up this system. The population of Canada has grown by 6 million in the last 20 years. And I assure you, proportionally, our system has not grown in terms of frontline workers. Oh, I bet you there have been plenty of bureaucratic jobs that have been made, but not enough actual workers. We need to change the way we're educating and training people. And Michelle, I like that you identified what came out in Ontario yesterday, which said, hey, if somebody did this internationally in a different place and they're an immigrant or a refugee, let's fix the certification process. I don't know about the two-week timeline that uh, the ministry actually gave uh, gave the profession to figure that out. But again, that's politicians being politicians. We'll put that aside. The fact is we do not have enough training grounds. We are not training enough people. And it's as simple as that. 
Joita, what do you think? Okay, Dave, how do you really feel, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, how do I really no, I feel? I'm sweating right now. <laughs> wow. Um, I, th- I think Dave has really summed up a lot of what I was going to say. And I think uh, w- uh, there's a few things here. If one is to be charitable, a lot of this is the aftermath of the pandemic. And as I said, if you're feeling charitable, you can see we maybe didn't see the pandemic coming. And we didn't realize it was going to be as much of a problem or put as much of a strain on the system as it clearly has. But... To be perfectly honest, these problems predate the pandemic and often we're dealing with the aftermath of retirement. So the question that I have is why were people not planning for retirements? We talked about family doctors a few weeks ago on the program and I remembered saying, I remember that it came up that with family physicians uh, retiring, they just didn't have enough medical students to fill the gap. Now, why was that not anticipated for? Why was that not planned for? In that sense, I sort of echo Dave's remarks about needing to improve training and recruitment. Now, if you're having problems with finding a family doctor in Toronto or Victoria, if you're Janet Mort, then think about being in a rural community or an indigenous community or any sort of northern or remote community in Canada where those problems go up exponentially. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's been shown to work, and this speaks to your point about recruitment, Dave, is targeting those remote communities because it's been found that if you target people who live in those communities and provide incentives for those folks to go to medical school, the research shows that they are more likely than not to go back to their home communities and practice. And I think that's where we really need to be doing some sensible thinking about how we recruit, who we recruit, and in what way we recruit. You know, you could Think about loan forgiveness. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think medicine is one of those uh, programs of study in Ontario anyway that is deregulated. So you could end up in a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. So maybe finding ways to reduce the cost of tuition or bringing in more financial aid, providing financial aid to uh, family physicians, because we were talking specifically about family physicians, uh, providing them with financial aid to actually help them set up businesses. Uh, Many are intimidated by starting a small business or providing some financial aid and assistance to do that might be really beneficial. And then, of course, a really useful point about foreign credentials. Uh, We shouldn't gloss over that because we often have this really mortifying scenario where you've got trained physicians, you were talking about specialists, specialists from other countries, and they end up driving taxi cabs because we don't have a good system to bring their credentials up to speed. I mean, come on, a spleen is a spleen is a spleen, no matter where you get trained in the world. So I think a little more attention paid to bringing uh, to ensuring that for foreign uh, that that medical students with foreign credentials are able to quickly and effectively practice across the, the country will help to alleviate those burdens um, I was just in uh, in France but and I couldn't help noticing the number of family doctor offices and this is just anecdotal but you know there I am and the place is crowded with family doctors and psychotherapists and if, when I went back and looked at home, when I came home and I did the research, the EU planned for the retirement of family physicians. In fact, going back from 2008 to present, the number of family physicians and, and doctors, in fact, has gone up by 15% vis-a-vis the general population. So wow. planning works. And that's what I'm trying to say. I think this is, to an extent, a mess entirely of our own making, even when you factor out the pandemic, which, again, to be charitable, maybe you just didn't see coming. Yeah, we'll we'll give it. We'll give people a, a, a pass on the pandemic in a sense, right? Even though people had warned us about that one, but they definitely, as Joita pointed out, warned us about the demographic bomb that was coming in regards to aging population. And it seems like nobody, everybody twiddled their thumbs for like two decades and just thought, ah, yeah, the system will work itself out. Yeah, 
guess what? It didn't. Uh, Michelle, thank you for bringing this topic to us. I bet you we will revisit it again, maybe even as early as next week. So thank you for bringing it to the table. (laughs) You've been listening to Now with Dave Brown. Hit the subscribe button on any podcast platform and leave us a rating and a review. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.